Well, good morning. Uh, let's see. Two weeks ago, we saw Jesus finishing up gathering his disciples. And we talked about how Jesus basically picks the wrong guy. Uh, he picks Matthew, who, as we, uh, we discussed, was a tax collector. Again, uh, that's kind of like my jam. I love the first century Judean economy. That's what I wrote my thesis on. So I like the term um, indigenous tax farmer. But we should know that he was a sellout to his own people, probably made a fair amount of money doing it, um, did it on behalf of the occupation force by way of Herod, the puppet king put in place by Rome. Not a good guy. Uh, I could draw some modern parallels um, to certain professions, but I'm just going to offend everybody at some point by doing that, so I'm not going to. Then last week, we saw that as Jesus gathered his 12 disciples, he seems to have done some things very intentionally, and some of those things were quite, shall we say, bold decisions. So he gathers 12 specifically as though he were recreating the tribes of Israel. Uh, but then he also gathered people who were on opposite ends of the ideological spectrum. So on like the one hand, we have somebody named Simon the Zealot or Cananias, um, uh, uh, basically, depending on your perspective, a terrorist who resented Roman occupation to the point of violence and then on the other end of the table, you've got that other guy we just talked about, Matthew, the tax collector, who would have been a target of Simon the Zealot for at least a good chunk of their adult lives. And now they're at the table together. And there are other little hints and whispers and suggestions. So it's like if you were to gather a group of people together and you have some some hardcore Democrats and hardcore Republicans and that like one libertarian guy and a Green Party guy and like a couple of anarcho-Marxists or something like that, it's going to be weird. Here we go. Buckle up. But Jesus seems to have done this intentionally because he is then going to send those 12 out to the surrounding towns and villages. And their job is to announce that God is finally acting. He is finally moving as he always said he would. That w that's kind of what it means when Jesus is saying the kingdom of God is here. It's like God's rule and reign, God's presence is returning. Now, again, shameless plug, we're talking about the presence of God in uh, my Bible study in between services, and it starts all the way in Genesis 1. So if that piques your interest, please come join us. It's never too late. But anyway, he sends them out, and then he gives them a bunch of um, instructions about what to take, what not to take, where to go, how to interact, and, and all of that good stuff. And at that point he seems to have switched conversations. I actually resent, just absolutely resent, I'm willing to go on record for this, the way our lectionary reading is broken up. Because 
it starts with verse 5, you know, Jesus sends the disciples out, the 12, and then it jumps up to verse 21, you know, brother will turn against brother and all of that. And I'm going to make a claim, I'm going to try to back it up, but we don't have a ton of time for me to do it. Our reading today has very little, if anything, to do with Jesus sending out his disciples. Now, at the outset, that seemed really loud all of a sudden. Anyway, at the outset, um, maybe you felt it, or maybe you just flat out noticed it, that it sounds like Jesus is kind of bouncing between topics. So, first off, he's brother will turn against brother, father will turn against son, and all of that. Um, Somehow the family unit is falling apart, and then they're going to drag them before authorities. Um, And then something about the son of man coming, but you won't make it to all the towns in Israel. Seems odd. And then he jumps to, no servant is above his master. It's enough for the servant to be like the master. And then he goes into acknowledging him before men so that God will acknowledge, but first you got to fear the one who will throw you. At some point, you got to take a step back and say, Jesus, have you been evaluated for ADHD? (laughs) And as somebody who has and passed with flying colors, um, I get that. And I think what the, the disconnect here is that this whole section is spoken and composed in a very stereotypically Jewish way, especially ancient Jewish way. We think linearly, as modern people, for the most part, we think linearly, and we think from like theme or concept to theme and concept. Ancient Jewish people wrote and thought by chaining together words and phrases. If you're a serious Bible nerd, uh, the book of James does this. And I would challenge you at some point this week, go through the book of James. It's not that long. And, and you'll start to see like some similar kind of like ping-ponging where you're going like, dude, are you Okay. But the reality is it was a very acceptable and understandable way for Jesus to communicate. But for us modern people, it can be very confusing because we're naturally going to to assemble or in our minds the brother against brother and then the servant of the, no servant is above the master and so on. We're going to naturally associate that with Jesus sending out his disciples. And I don't think it has anything to do with that. One of the telltale moments for that is when Jesus says, you won't make it to all the towns of Israel until the Son of Man comes. Now again, this is shorthand. This is a shorthand quote that Jesus, uh, and it's Jesus' way of referring back to Daniel chapter 7. If that doesn't make any sense to you, don't worry about it. Uh, Think of it more like this. If I say, the force, may the force be with you, as good Lutherans you would say, and also with you, um, but if I say, the, may the force be with you, or use the force, or something like that, I've used a very short, very really shorthand f- sentence 
But as a, as a person who lives in this culture, you're immediately thinking of a whole universe of movies and stuff like the end shows, right? It's the same thing that Jesus is doing. So Daniel 7, it's uh, uh, chapter 7, I think it's verse 13, is, more, is everything about, or has everything to do with Jesus as the coming Messiah taking his throne. This is not a reference to Jesus' second coming. Because when does Jesus take his throne? When he ascends to heaven. Acts chapter 1. About 50-ish days after Pentecost. Or, um, no, on Pentecost. 50-ish days before, uh, after Passover. So what's going on here? Uh, some of this I'm just going to have to skip ahead. If you are interested or you think I'm wrong, just email me. Jesus as prophet, and he is absolutely a prophet, he's a lot more than that, sees a crisis coming amongst his people. And this crisis, as Jesus sees it, has a di- is a direct result of his people rejecting him. So when Jesus goes around saying, hey, repent for the kingdom is near, we find that phrase in other ancient Jewish writing. It's all about politics. It's all about agendas. Jesus is saying, stop doing things the way you have been doing them. Take on my agenda, which leads us to ask, well, what is Jesus' agenda? The kingdom of God is here. The presence of God is returning to his people. Therefore, if somebody's hungry, give them food. If somebody needs clothes, give them clothes. If somebody has hurt you, forgive them. If you have hurt somebody, seek forgiveness. As opposed to the other agendas, and there were many, of it's time to kick the Romans out of Israel and reestablish the kingdom of God. It's time to hunt out the sinful people and evildoers and put them to death. Or it's time to completely escape from society and ignore everything that's happening over there, even though God calls us to do the opposite because it's safer over here. Jesus sees the direction of his people And it's heading towards this weird kind of nationalism. And it's going to erupt in what we now know of as the first Jewish-Roman war. It breaks out in the year 66 uh, CE or AD. And when that happens, we now see the warning that Jesus is giving here. Your family units are going to fall apart. People are going to hate you because you're followers of Jesus. And when you see these things, when you see war breaking out, when you see the world falling apart around you, uh, you're going to go, this is exactly what warned us about. Don't get involved. This is, not your, this is not the kingdom of God. This is not your agenda. This is not how you are going to be. Don't get involved. And in fact, get out of town. And they will hate you for it. Now, Historically, that's exactly what happened. War breaks out. This weird group of Jews that followed this guy named Jesus and believed that he was the Messiah do not get involved. 
And kind of from that point on, the rift between Judaism and Christianity widens. Now, that's all very interesting history. I find that interesting anyway. But what does that have to do with us? Because that calamity has long since taken place, the echoes of which, believe it or not, we still feel today. But as followers of Jesus, what sense are we supposed to make of Jesus prophesying this event that took place that really for us we have no, dis- uh, no direct connection to? On the one hand, this is not an encouragement to hate your brother. It's a joke, but whatever. It's, uh, fathers, this is not uh, an encouragement to kick your kids out or, or anything like that. I get it, but don't. Um, do you get a sense of pending doom? when you hear what Jesus is saying. I mean, it can be a little hard because ancient literature and, and especially the Bible is very different from, the one, from what we're used to. But there is a sense of bad times are coming. And it's inevitable that things are going to get hard. Things are going to be painful. They are going to hurt. I don't know about you, but I have noticed that given enough life experience, those moments are inevitable. Just as Jesus, as he is instructing his disciples, and then does that that weird switch into kind of thinking about a generation ahead and giving them a bunch of warnings, saying, it's about to get difficult, buckle up. I can easily say the same thing for you, and I have no idea when it's coming, and I don't know what it's going to look like, but I promise you it's going to happen. And I think one of, um, one of the most powerful aspects of the way of Jesus is the way that it handles suffering, the way that it handles fear, the way that it handles doom. At no point does Jesus try to diminish it. At no point does Jesus try to explain it away. At no point does he tell his disciples, oh, don't worry about it, you're going to be fine. Of course not. He takes it very seriously. He acknowledges the struggles that his disciples are going to face, and they do. If they were still, like some of them had already been killed, but by the time the calamity hits, some of them are still around. So what about you? I'm willing to bet that most of you are not like in a moment of crisis. 
which is the perfect time to start thinking about this. That space between, that, that moment of anticipation, that liminal space, is probably on the horizon. My prayer, of course, it's many years from now. But for some of you, it might not be. So just like our Jeremiah reading, and, and Jeremiah, I love Jeremiah. Uh, Jeremiah, as he is like whining and lamenting to God, it, the whole context is also impending doom, which is, I think, why we had that reading for today. Um, what do you tell yourself now to prepare yourself for what's coming? I'm also noticing, kind of in general amongst Jesus followers, that there's, there's kind of a rising sense, or there's a rising anxiety culturally. We're kind of in the, this moment where the pendulum is swinging really hard one way. And for some of us, that challenges our values pretty deeply. And when values are challenged, people tend to get really uncomfortable. And when people get uncomfortable, they get anxious. And when they get anxious, they tend to get angry. So what do you do? Or maybe a better question would be, what did Jesus say? Look, birds die all the time. That's what Jesus says. Birds die all the time. I just, it's vaguely related, but I want to tell the story. My parents love um, birds. So does my brother and, and his wife. And so my parents set up a whole bunch of um, bird feeders, and all kinds of birds would come and flock to their uh, backyard. It was, honestly, it was really cool. Um, they inadvertently set up a feeding ground for hawks. <laughs> <laughs> Think about that for a minute. And so uh, they don't do that anymore. Birds die all the time. That's what Jesus says. You are a human being made in the image of God, made in his likeness. You, as a follower of Jesus, Bear the sacred space, a temple of the Holy Spirit. That's not metaphorical language, it's actually quite literal. God has placed human beings in his creation to be his representative. Do you think you're more valuable than a bird? Yeah. God knows the number of hairs on your head. That number, for me, is diminishing. But he still knows them. Jesus, in other words, is saying, you are infinitely more value, valuable than the things around you. You are going to be okay. That doesn't mean it's, gonna be, it's not going to be hard. That doesn't mean you're not going to suffer. That doesn't mean you're not going to experience loss. 
That doesn't mean that you're not going to come to a point where you really regret the decisions that brought you to this moment. And yet, Jesus will be with you. He has taken his seat at the right hand of God the Father. He, as you acknowledge Jesus before each other, before the rest of the world, acknowledges you before the Father in heaven. He took this idea of rescue and redemption and the coming suffering and calamity so seriously that even though you in your direct actions and in your shared humanity have a role to play in the sin and destruction around you, he went to his grave for you. And if somebody who has experienced immense suffering, suffering unimaginable to the point where God had forsaken him, is able to say, you are going to be okay, trust me and I love you, then guess what? You're going to be okay. Because the way of Jesus is not just about embracing that suffering because there's one more step. The way of Jesus is the way where the suffering never has the final word. We believe in the God who raises the dead and he began raising the dead with Jesus and he will raise us in the same way he raised Jesus. Paul says he will make our mortal bodies like his immortal body And so whenever and whatever that impending doom looks like, whenever you find yourself in that liminal space, that moment where you're taking a very deep breath knowing, oh, this is not going to be good. When you find yourself anxious and frustrated and you don't know how to make sense with the world around you. And sometimes, if I'm perfectly honest, if you find yourself going, I have now brought incredible destruction in and around me, Here are the consequences of my own actions. God still raised Jesus from the dead. Jesus still promises his presence with you. You're going to be okay. 